0: So last time, I think we had some really good conversation afterwards again, and uh, and this helps me when teaching to see what I missed, what I probably didn't define well before. It, it, so anytime you have something on your mind, please bring it up because again, it's a big help to me, and it helps you because I can respond to uh, the questions or concerns or what have you. Uh, so last last week, a couple of things that I want to revisit quickly before I get back into the introduction. Hence why it takes so long. But anyway, uh, there are two things, and I'm going to limit it to these two things. <clears throat> um, we have, um, there was a question over the, um, the issue of conversionism and pietism. Okay. And I don't think I defined it very well last week. I, it was kind of off the cuff. So it's really hard to define because it is something that, um, it comes from a place that every Christian believes in. But sometimes uh, the pietist will take it a bit further; it becomes extra biblical. So the difference between you know traditional, reformed piety and pietism are two different things. Um, the great reformed scholar, systematician Herman Bavink classified pietism going all the way back to the Puritan era. So he he sees the pietists as being even the Puritan. Where I would differentiate between the Puritans of you know, the late 15, early 16, to mid 1600s with the later pietists is that the end goal was always the same for the Puritans. What is the solution? right? What is uh, the solution to your problem? Whether it is... Uh, Spiritual depression, whether it is backsliding, what do you do? As far as humanly speaking, well, you attend to the ordinary means of grace. You come to church Sunday. Simple. That's. If you ever read a Puritan sermon, I know they're long, but if you can finally get through it all, uh, at first you sound, you know, if you know what pietism is, you're like, these guys sound like pietists. But then when you get to the end. It's always back to Christ and back to the ordinary means that God has provided in word, sacrament, and prayer. The pietist uh, arose, pietism arose from, uh, as I mentioned last week, it was a kind of a fringe movement within the Lutheran church in the 17th century. And it influenced the Dutch Reformed, uh, within the Dutch Reformed, not all Dutch Reformed, let me clarify not all Dutch Reformed are pietists. Pietism grew within the Dutch Reformed Church as kind of like a fringe movement, and that's what eventually influenced the first Great Awakening. You know, um, the Edwards, Whitfield, and the crew, the Tennant brothers. Um, and they emphasized extra biblical activity. So out of this came the more modern, you know, small group Bible studies, prayer meetings. Increased lay participation in various aspects of ministry. And these are good things. Um, Our church, our session. We seek to provide these things for um, believers, for members. These are wise to attend to. It's wise for your spiritual growth to attend a Bible study, prayer meeting. Uh, All these things are wise. But the question is. Is it law? That's a, that's a tricky question, isn't it? Is it law? And once it becomes law in your mind, you begin to question everyone around you. Well, I, I didn't see him at prayer meeting this week, I didn't see him in Bible study. He's, he wasn't going to a small group. And then you begin to treat it as if these are the marks of the Christian. But are they? That's, that's pietism. So pietism turned these weekly, during the week gatherings into law. To, at the expense of Sunday morning worship. Because they were sick of the formalities. And not thinking that all these other things will become formalities too. Right? Um, they, they were sick of the ritual. The sun, every sun, Okay, you're a Sunday only Christian now. Or this, that, and the other. All these criticisms not seeing how their own actions kind of are the same, right? They're they're placing these binds on people the same way that we would place on someone for Sunday morning worship. Uh, As a session, we cannot discipline anyone for not attending certain things we provide during the week. But we can with Sunday, Sunday morning worship. We'll call someone if we haven't seen someone in a while. Hey, haven't seen you in a while in worship. Where are you? You know? Uh, straightforward conversation. Um, But we don't cheat the other things during the week on the same level. Though they are wise. And it would be foolish for you not to attend to these means. But is it law? Is the question. Okay. Once we confuse the categories, this is where pietism, legalism tends to arise in in the church. And um, rather than giving having it available, the session makes it available, and then by the Spirit's leading, by hopefully some maturity, people will attend to these that we uh, uh, offer. So that's the one, one issue I think folks had a little bit of confusion over last week. Uh, what's, what is pietism? What is conversionism? Conversionism comes out of pietism. Um, uh, it really places emphasis on spiritual uh, experiences, you must have a sound, not profession of faith and life, but a sound conversion experience. You, you, uh, early on in the colonies, uh, the Congregationalists and Presbyterians were seeking to unite the two denominations, which to me is an, um, impossible to do because you have two different church governments altogether. They were seeking to unite, and they, when they were seeking to unite, they had what was called a halfway covenant, and, and it's really hard to Really decipher what they believed in, but um, something to do with uh, baptizing the infants of a family whose father is a believer, but the mother's not. It's something to do with that, and they would they would um, only they would only accept someone's membership if they had a credible conversion story. If you didn't have a conversion story, that you know, whether it's this dramatic experience, then they would put a question mark on your conversion. Um, unfortunately, some of the people we loved in our Reformed community kind of follow that same thought pattern. Um, it comes out in the preaching. Um, I think it was even Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who said, if you can't remember the moment you were saved, then you're probably not saved. Right. That's not Presbyterian at all. And so uh, we, we pray from the beginning. We believe in the covenant. We believe that God uh, fulfills his covenant. And the covenant is for you and your children over and over again through the scripture. Uh, and Peter quotes that. Uh, and that is from Genesis where um, Abraham was going to give the sign of the covenant to the child. Right? Right? First generation believers, right? Abraham, first generation to receive that sign. He gives that same sign to children. And when Peter, in the context, when Peter quoted that text, he was speaking about baptism. And he said, this is for you, this promise is for you and your children. And so the same sign that was given, that Abraham gave to his children, he gave to the children of the new covenant, which the sign being baptism. So children were also baptized in the new covenant. And, um, and we believe that God will fulfill his promises to those children. If not, instead of a sign of blessing, it becomes a sign of curse. Just like circumcision was in the old. So the sign of baptism can be a sign of blessing or it can be a sign of cursing. And we always pray from that moment of baptism, we pray... That our children would come to know the Lord at a very young age, so they don't, they're not going to remember their quote unquote conversion when they grow to adulthood. So, in this, you know, this is my issue with uh, a lot of the um, kind of resurgence of trying to um, make the Puritan movement of the 1500s and 1600s as this broadly evangelical movement. It wasn't, they were very much confessional. They were very much covenantal. Uh, And and, yeah, they said some good things that evangelicals or quote-unquote Calvinistic reform people will agree with. But it always came back to the context of worship. right? Of the ordinary means of grace and God fulfilling his promises. God will fulfill his promises uh, despite our choices. He will fulfill them. Any questions on that before I move forward to the book? I see your head spinning, Linda. I don't remember. I've, my question was: uh, You said outside the ordinary means. Was that is that what you're talking about? Remember, my question was. Oh, um, uh, no, outside? no, no. Yeah, yeah. Uh, conviction of sin. Okay. So the conviction of sin. Um, we can be convicted, worldly speaking, when it comes to our conscience. Our our conscience can be pricked, and then we just continue doing the same things, or you know, over and over again. I think we still do that even as believers. But, but the unbeliever, when he's convicted, if he's convicted at any point, it's a worldly conviction of sin. It's not. It's not the Holy Spirit. In the sense of leading him to salvation, right? When we speak of conviction of sin, we're speaking of conviction within the order of salvation okay if you're convicted of sin by the Holy Spirit and it is a Godward conviction that's a sign of salvation It there's no um, what, you, what came out of conversionism is this preparationism where people will be convicted of sin for months years and never come to real faith to me the person who is convicted and his conviction is word. Mm-hmm. is a believer. He's having problems with his assurance. And the minister's role is to preach the gospel to ease that. Okay? To ease his conscience. Um, where the pietism and the first great awakening did not, uh, they, they excluded conviction of sin. Conviction of sin laid outside of the order of salvation. That's where the pro- that's a huge problem, uh, and that led to preparationism. That led to um, yeah, you can have a good hellfire and brimstone sermon, but if there's no gospel in it, Job's friends, right? Right back, right back to Job's friends, right? So we we, we need to be careful. And for those who weren't here, we, we talked about the Tenant Brothers and their uh, their um, disliking the. Order of Presbyterianism and how it's rigorous and how you know a minister's not going to get ordained unless he is really you know trained, educated, and rigorously, rigorously examined. I went through it. It was rough. It was rough, but it's for the the sake of the unity and purity of the church to make sure that that minister is actually called to. To the ministry and um, that he has his doctrine in order uh, to do quick ordinations just to get the gospel out is, is not good order according to scripture. Right? Look at scripture, it wasn't quick. Right? The disciples walked for three years with Jesus and then add another 40 days, and, th- and then they were sent out. Even then, they faltered. Right? Paul was trained three years, no one No talk of what happened in that training. But it was, I'm sure it was rigorous. And even after that, he didn't come to the disciples saying, Hey, I'm one of y'all. No. They had to prove that he was one of them before he received the right hand of fellowship. So it, it is no easy thing to become a minister. And the problem with, the new side, the those who favored the awakenings, they wanted to make easy roads into ministry, and it was really had a lot to do with church government. And you could see there were problems with doctrine, even in Edwards. You know, when it came to justification by faith, um, and various areas of um, yes. Okay, you've talked enough now. Now I want to know where this came from. So we haven't got to this week still yet. <laughs> but now I'm... In I'm current. recapping. This is we yeah, yeah. We're recapping. So, now I'm... In. If okay. You if you do not want to do that now, that's okay. But okay. So, I'm just... You, maybe you know... Maybe you could nutshell it, or do you want me mm-hmm. to read something, or I'm just curious... The, the paper I gave you... Yep. And I have a longer article that Great. some some of us have. The paper I... That sums it all up. Because I'm trying to identify... I, I was just okay. just how you got to these two sides yep. at this point. and And you know yeah if maybe for the sake of what you're going forward yeah you know is this is this the one is this the two presbyterian churches in this timer and that's yep yeah. okay yeah yeah so it, it started with this church split in the 1700s so uh, the presbyterian church I, I found out is the most divided church in history uh so uh, in the 1700s you had um uh, already early in its beginning uh, the the Presbyterian Church split old old side new side, right? And it was over the first Great Awakening. Old side uh, did not support the Great Awakening. New side did. Okay. Then after that, they, they reunited thankfully, right? In 1758, I believe. Uh, and but the mindset of the the Great Awakening, that mindset of you know you know kind of let's 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 ease off doctrine and unite for other reasons, whether it's societal or whatever have you. That mindset continued, and then the church split again. Well, first it split over, I don't know if it's first, I don't think it's first, but it split over the war, so you had the uh, uh, north and south, right, split over the Civil War. And then in the north, we split over old school and new school. Old school, very much more Arminian. Uh, Wait, did I say old and new? New school, very much Arminian. uh, Was allowing for the speaking of tongues, all these things, charismatic gifts. Old school, very doctrinal. Princeton uh, theology, so Princeton Seminary. It's out of this old school, old side old school line that we, again, eventually get to Machen. Because that mindset of, of the new school remains in the church because they reunite in 1869. And when they reunite in 1869, this would eventually lead, this mindset would eventually lead to Machen's uh, discipline. Okay. Okay. Doctrine's not that important. What's important is that we unite, we can allow the Arminian to be ordained. We can allow for someone who denies the virgin birth, who, who cannot, well, I, I shouldn't say deny, that's not fair, who doesn't affirm the virgin birth. Who doesn't affirm the resurrection of the dead in his ordination exams? So, that, for Machen, this is where, okay, Got no, this can't happen. And the same um, presbytery that was founded by the new side, right, all the way back in the 1700s, the presbytery of New Brunswick, would eventually be the presbytery that would discipline Machen. So the teaching, the tradition, the mindset was passed down generation to generation. Um, About the what is it? No. The Canadians? The Canadians. No, that's New Brunswick, New Jersey. Oh, okay. <laughs> Don't blame the Canadians this time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Machen actually had good relations with the Canadian Reformed Church. Good. Yeah. This will be a quick one for you. Yeah. Um, but what do we do with...
1: We have on
0: Whitfield and his mm-hmm. teachings and stuff. Do we toss them? No, or? no, I mean, no, no, uh, I think that would be another extreme. I think uh, I believe he was a believer, uh, he believed in the doctrines of grace, he preached it. I would disagree with his church order, uh, his views on church order. Um, he usurped authority. So, we're, we're, you know, just like Luther had his flaws, okay. Whitfield has Had his. All They all had flaws now, my issue with Edwards is more doctrinal, so I would be more cautious with Edwards than I would be with Whitfield. Okay. E- Edwards had doctrine in there i 'm going to get to it, but why not now? I mean we 're already there. I have one minute before I have to start so uh, and we will get there once uh, we get back into church history. but um, so in our confessional standards and what we believe is the essence of faith. So what is faith, or what is saving faith in the confessional standards? We say it is knowledge, assent to that knowledge, saying yes, I believe this, and trust in that knowledge. The problem with Edwards is that he brings in love to the essence of faith. So the affections. Okay, and, um, and this is what would lead to his big conviction on, you know, he wrote a book on affections and all this. But he included that as the essence, if, you, if this is not in the essence of faith, it's not true faith. See, we must distinguish between um, faith which once believes is the instrument of salvation, right? It's the instrument of justifying, uh, justification, when we believe, that's a, that's a punctual thing. It happened once. That's it. One and done. There, there is no growth in justification. Right? There is no, um, no working upon our justification. That's it. Once, once we believe, you're saved. We must distinguish that from sanctification, which is a process. And affections would fall under that. Our affections are still... I hope you can tell, is not complete. Where this other, other section of, you know, uh, saying, yes, even if you don't know it all, yes, this knowledge, I agree with it, I assent to it, and I trust in it. Faith is a receiving and resting. Nothing is coming out of us. We come to God with open hands. Once we come to God with open hands, you're justified, you're cleared of all guilt. Never again will you be condemned. Romans 8. But then there's sanctification. And that's where affections would fall. And I think that's where there was a confusion in his doctrine. That you need to be careful. Can you yes? go just a little bit further on affection? I mean, sure. I and I know other Christians have struggled with feeling. Yeah. They don't love God enough. Mm. So how does that fit in? And I, I understand it better now. I think... The more you know God through reading His Word and all the ordinary means, yeah. then you will love God more. Hmm. But that's not proof. Uh, how does how does you just get valami? Yeah, no. Um Affections. I mean, you can bring it back to our desires um, or what we long for. Uh, I'm going through with uh, in Job. Um, I think that's better connected with affections than okay. feeling. I see. Right, like. No, you get a uh, butterflies in your stomach or something like that. It's more your desire and what you do with that. Right? What are you? What are you? What are you uh, doing with your time? Which is evidence of what you desire, right? We're to love God with all our heart, mm-hmm. soul, and mind. Yep. I mean, what is heart, that? soul, and mind. Yep. Just, I mean, George put the old nose love under that mm-hmm. under faith. Yeah. Love God with yeah, but loving God with our heart, soul, and mind is again a fruit of faith. Not it's not the essence of faith. I see. It's still confusing. Yeah, it's not the essence of faith. Receiving and resting in Christ alone is all for salvation. And anything else, this is why Jesus told the rich young ruler, He gave him the commandment, "Love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength." What was he doing? He was he was showing him his sin. He was showing him, "You don't." And you need me. Mm -hmm. That that was the point of that. It wasn't, oh, he he was actually going to go do it. No, he couldn't do it. We can't do it. Without the regenerating spirit and without God working on us over a long period of time. And this is, I mean, it's a lifelong thing. We will die with hatred of God in our hearts. As saints and sinners at the same time. We, I mean, that's... Because we have this flesh. To deny that would be to deny that we have a sinful human nature, still as believers. Yes, uh, Ken? Yeah, uh, I've certainly experienced many that, that believe that love is a means to salvation. If you can yeah. create a deeper love, you're, you're, you're yeah. going to be saved. But love is a fruit of salvation, not a means of salvation. Exactly. Yeah, and that's exactly the point I'm getting at, where unfortunately for Edwards, he had that under the essence of faith so um, and this impacted many churches and it still does today when when you're thinking about even churches in Scotland and other churches that are very more, more on the pietistic strain of things where they'll say oh yeah I believe doctrine and I believe this that and the other but man when I was really converted it was this overwhelming joy and I'm like, that's great. They, we, I believe that is from God. But is that the moment you were converted? I'm not sure. I would question that. Yeah. But anyway, this is all. <laughs> we're going like this. But this is all to connect with what Machen was dealing with. And the mindset of the Pres- Presbyterian church at this time became more broadly evangelical. Uh, kind of, They, they wanted to uh, affect society more than... Uh, Called people to worship, right? Uh, the doctrine wasn't solid, and they were already even the moderate, uh, the moderate um, Christians, the conservative Christians in the church, were compromising when it came to doctrine. So, um, and, and that's a, that was a big problem for Machen, and Machen would uh, uh, come in to um, fight against it uh, in this uh, book, Christianity and Liberalism, and we went over uh, a lot of the introduction. I can't tell you exactly what page we're on. But he defined liberalism as uh, natural, naturalism. You want to know what liberalism is? is um, it is trying to find a natural explanation for what we believe. So the supernatural stuff. Miracles. Um, Jesus being born of a virgin. Jesus being raised from the dead. Not that important. What's really important is that we do the morals. The moral standards that Jesus told us to do. Forget all the, those stuff. As long as we fulfill, what is it now? Sermon on the Mount. Right? The Sermon on the Mount becomes the most important piece of the Bible to the liberal. Okay. Obviously reading it out of its context... Because when you read the Sermon on the Mount, and I think he gets to it, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, in its context, it was for believers. right? He preached, if you look at the text, he preached to his disciples, not to the world. Okay. So being a disciple of Christ, coming to faith in Christ, here's the Sermon on the Mount. And we, we know even the Sermon on the Mount ought to be the first thing to you, law. It's convicting you of your sin. It's showing you, I haven't done X, Y, and Z, or whatever. So for the liberal, Sermon on the Mount becomes the major thing. Only Jesus' words, not Paul, not the Old Testament. Jesus is the one who reveals God, and that's it. And by the way, forget his miracles. So really, you boil down to just his teachings on morals in the liberal church, in the liberal's mind. And so... uh, Machen would define this as naturalism. They're they're getting rid of the supernatural. They're pretty much removing the gospel altogether. And they're boiling boiling it down to just the morals. Now, do Christians live according to what Jesus told us? I hope so. But that's not all there is. What about God's divine supernatural grace? Right? Uh, And, you know, he'll get into how the natural man cannot do anything that Jesus has commanded through and through. We're talking about heart, mind, soul. He cannot. He is imp- it is impossible. And this is why he would have problems with, say, public, quote-unquote, public theology. Okay. Uh, so he defines it as uh, naturalism, and then he goes on to comment on modern materialism, which is a form of atheism, believing that this world... And the materials that make up this world and the universe is all that there is. Meaning there is no supernatural activity. That is the, the, the materialist. The liberal sounds very close, close to the materialist and the atheist. And the liberal believes that he has an enemy in those who hold to supernatural doctrines, biblical doctrines, and he'll abandon one enemy only to find another in his own ranks. This is what he says. He'll find the atheist in his own ranks, the materialist. The one who believes only in the material world. So he says we have a battle on our hands, and it is not enough just to just alarm people about it. We must fight. Both in the church as well as in scholarship. Machin was indeed a fighter, as Jude calls us, to contend, another word for fight for the faith that was once delivered to all the saints. That's Jude 3. Because the liberal abandoned the truths of scripture for the sake of peace, but there is no peace, as he says, without victory. Someone must win the battle. You have to choose a side. If you choose the liberal side, it is a slippery slope to atheism because we must define what liberalism is. Notice, I haven't used the phrase liberal Christian because it is an oxymoron, meaning they don't go together. Uh, That was not the way Machen viewed liberalism in his day. He says it is a different religion altogether. It is not Christianity. It is not Christianity. We must make a distinction between the two, and this is the point he makes throughout this book. This is the main point of this book. Liberalism is not Christianity. It's a different religion. So when you, you you see liberal churches hanging whatever banners they want outside the church and Contrary to Revelation, those who have gone liberal, who don't believe in the the supernatural, those are not churches. They're not churches. They're no longer Christian, according to Machen. Because like his famous quote says, Christianity is not just a lifestyle, it is also a doctrine. I hope we have that all in our offices, in our bedrooms, just hanging It would be a little weird, but whatever. It's not just a lifestyle, it is also a doctrine. And what flows out of the doctrine is the lifestyle. You can't have the lifestyle without the doctrine at the foundation. He goes on to clarify that this battle is not a battle between Christianity and science, right? Some will confuse that. But it is about how modern liberalism, in its attempt to reconcile New Testament Christianity with the modern sciences, has renounced. Everything that makes Christianity distinct or unique right, is supernatural. And that leaves Christianity like every other religion in the world. Notice how most religions have almost the same basic morality. If, if you take the miracles of Jesus and who he is out of the Bible, you are left with the basic religious aspirations of the world. Uh, I, I know a lot of Christians who avoid the debates, or avoid the confrontation, because because it is hard to defend, right? But the things that are most worth defending are oftentimes the hardest to defend, because if we allow modern liberalism to control the preaching of the church, which it has already in many churches, the Christianity and the gospel would perish from the earth. So, is we must ask ourselves: Is every other religion the same? Are, are we all the same? Because there's Morals, right? They may follow, um, you know, his principles on forgiveness. I know Islam is big into forgiving each other, but do they have the same God? Do they have the same gospel? They deny Jesus' is the deity. They deny that he even died on the cross. They deny that he rose from the dead. Is it the same religion? No, it's not. The most important question the church is to ask is what are we to preach? Uh, I didn't plan it. I said it this morning. What are we to preach? Now, Maitre knew that many would think that defending the truths of the Bible would be pointless or useless, whether they believe it or not. He believed that this stems from an exaggerated estimation of the achievements of science and the strength of its arguments. Though we must admit that science and scientific observation has accomplished much and there have been improvements in the world from gen- the generations prior, but also in other words, other ways, there has been a lamentable decline. There have been improvements in the physical conditions of life. We can't deny that. I'll say this over and over again. A uh, former pastor of mine says, "If there's any time I want to live, it's right now." We have running water. We can flush our toilets. We have medicine. That keeps me from dying at an early age? Yeah, I'd I'd rather live now. Um, But there was a decline in the spiritual realm. And here, it's tricky when you read Machen because he's a man of his time and he speaks in a certain poetic way. He's not talking about Holy Spirit spiritual. He's talking about human activity, the, the activity of the mind. He is saying that in many ways we have progress, but in many ways we have declined when it comes to human activity and adventure and, and going out and discovering and doing more because there's, there's a lot of dumbing down of the mind when we think we have reached the final you know, answer in science. And here he says where it is most evident is in the arts. Today we notice that decline as well in music, movies, What is considered to be good is actually terrible. We are experiencing that today, never mind in his day. Uh, So, I don't like all that. I mean, some people like it. Fine. But that weird art, you know, the kind of impressionistic, I don't know what you call it. Linda, you probably know more than I do. Is is that it? Okay. After Renaissance. Yeah. Uh, Anyway. So, all that stuff is now terrible and there's no uh, uh, no energy, no no vigor in the human mind and the the spiritual realm as, uh, as he's talking here. And we no longer appreciate the glories of the past under the influence of a utilitarian system. If you don't know what a utilitarian system is, it is a system designed only for practical purposes rather than attractive purposes. Only for practical right? Education, for instance, that concerns itself only with the production of physical well-being. As if that is the only thing that's important to man. Right? We see this displayed in communist and socialist countries. Where there is little to no freedom to be creative or innovative or entrepreneurial. But everything is provided for your physical well-being. So you should just be happy and shut up. That's communism. Right? Right? The government's purpose is to make you happy, and they decide what that happiness is, and they decide what it takes to get there. And for them, it is human physical well-being. Right? As long as everybody in the collective is doing okay, that's what we're going to ensure, even if it is to take the freedom away from some to get it done. That's utilitarianism. Uh, you get to live long because this world is all that there is. Right. This world is all that there is and we should serve the purposes of this world. They believe that the only purpose for human life is to survive and indulge. I, re- I remember the old um, cartoons or drawings of um, their <clears throat> the communists and their portrayal of uh, the capitalists as this big Buddha-looking figure Who's, all he's doing is eating. Right? That, I mean, it's actually the opposite. Because that's what they want to create in their society. is just this, you know, you're just made to survive, eat, and, you know, live a long life. And that's it. I mean, if you have that, you should be happy and just shut up. Everybody's doing well in your family. That's it. Machin, you know, obviously... Being the libertarian he was, he was like, no, that's not, that's not all that there is uh, to life. Because he, he says the reason why there has been a decline in the arts is that there has been a narrowing of the range of personality which is, has been going on in the modern world. Again, remember, he was a libertarian. He, he believed in freedom. He believed in a pluralistic society where people were free to choose what they wanted to be. He believed in the American dream that many of us uh, may believe in. But he said what the whole development of modern society has been tending toward is the limitation of the realm of freedom for the individual man. We see that most obviously today. There are some elites in society who want to control the narrative on both sides, by the way. I'm not picking sides here. They want to control the narrative. And if you are not in line with that narrative, you can be ostracized, called names, bigots, accused of being fascist, or even accused of being communist, with no evidence, and there are financial penalties being imposed on groups who refuse to support the narrative. And a lot of the narrative is coming down from the elites in society, from the leaders, scientists, doctors, philosophers of a certain stripe. And if you are not of that stripe, you are not heard of or taken seriously. Um, This sounds a lot like Nazi Germany. or Soviet Russia, and other communist and socialist countries. Machen said that this tendency is most clearly seen in socialism. Uh, a socialistic state would mean the reduction to a minimum of the sphere of individual choice. And this is where Machen wouldn't have been a good Puritan either, especially of the New England brand. Um, he, he, he was too much of a libertarian. He, he believed that the church is a voluntary association. You cannot force people to be Christians, and you cannot force people to go to church. You're free to go to church, right? You you cannot find people who didn't go to church. And I think this is healthy, not only for the church, but also for society. He said that under a socialistic government, labor and recreation would be prescribed, and individual liberty would be gone. Um... And I mentioned last time how uh, the decay of the black community uh, is directly linked to socialism. Um, I heard one brother in the Lord say, the black community went from a trying people to a crying people and is not crying to God for help as we are called to do, uh, as we see throughout Job, but the people relying on men the governments the princes they they're trusting in princes and, and the other problem was during especially during the civil rights movement socialism was being preached from the pulpits not the gospel it was socialism it was it was uh, activism okay and activism on the other side of the fence on the right side is a problem as well So don't get me wrong, not picking on one side. Both sides are wrong when it comes to that. Uh, And they didn't know how destructive it is to even human development and human achievement. But he said that it is not, like I've been saying, it's not only in a socialistic state, but also in those circles that would normally abhor socialism, right? And where they would pride themselves as democratic or mob rule, where the majority imposes a regime, On the individual man. He brings up the cause of welfare. um, And he's not talking about the welfare system that we have now. And that wasn't even created yet, I don't think. Um, That came after he died um, with um, Roosevelt. He he is talking about welfare in general, uh, the welfare of mankind. Uh, We would all agree that welfare is a good thing. We have a right. To care for ourselves. To protect ourselves. And to make sure that. Or, or to see uh, the best way to extend our lives. right? These are all uh, w- within God's law. But for- forced welfare may be bad. When you're forcing the welfare of others on other people. Right? Uh, and you're, you're stripping the, the minority of their freedoms. Right? Again this is why he was very much into immigration. And he said. Immigration is a good thing and we should not mistreat immigrants. He, he, he viewed that we ought to defend, defend their rights. Because in the interests of physical well-being, the great principles of liberty are being thrown ruthlessly to the winds. And that leads to an impoverish, impoverishment of human life. But human personality can only be developed in the realm of individual choice. Again, he's speaking on a human level. And that is what is being slowly taken away from us. Uh, He sees this being played out in the education system, right? The public education system. The object of education today is the production of the greatest happiness for the greatest number. And this is defined by the will of the majority. School choice, right? Public, private, charter, homeschool, is to be taken away from parents and placed in the hands of the state. Distinct features of education, such as accelerated classes or presenting differing points of view, like in the sciences, ought to be avoided according to today, today's standards, right? Um, He was against all that. We'll get to that. Uh, Psychological experts who are instruments of the state take over and your children are placed in their care. At the time, he said that this was delayed in America this is 1920s and 30s. But as you can see, it has become manifest in many parts of the country today. Right? A country that once prided itself on its freedom from bureaucratic regulation has become mostly utilitarian, sacrificing individual liberties for the greater good. Uh, he gives some examples of uh, his time and how in some public schools they took away the study of second languages, which prevents genuine mental advance and would cause people to just plateau. Stagnant. Never truly progress in thought. And remain, he says, in arrested development. Um, uh, and he says this, this was actually a Christian move. From the um, Protestants who were afraid that Rome was going to take over the country. Okay? Back then. Today is for different reasons. Today they, you know, they're just dumbing down education altogether. Back then it was a paranoia that uh, you know the Southern Europeans who were moving over were going to take over and we won't speak English anymore. And he said, what? No, we need to continue to teach other languages. You're going to stifle your education and your learning and human development in this, in this world. And Machen believed in school choice and having those options available such as Christian and private schools. These choice, choices should not be controlled by the state. Even at his time, he viewed that many public schools had embraced materialism and discouraged intellectual effort. But, with all that said, he also saw the benefit of public schools to the human race. He wasn't completely against it, as some in uh, our circles are. Um, He saw the benefit of it. The thought of having school available to all people is a good thing, but only, only if it can compete on an educational level with private schools. There must be an actual competition. I've known since I was a kid the private school is always better. Right? I went to private school for three years. Um, it didn't stop the indulging of the flesh. So, you know, I was eventually removed again because I caused all sorts of problems. But as far back as I can remember... Private schools cost so much money, impossible for people to afford. The educational level was always better. And, and, you know, the public school system kind of dwindled down and removed, you know, certain accelerated classes, so on and so forth. So, and this is what he is arguing against. When you have a public school as an option, it can often be used as an instrument of tyranny where children are forced to think like materialists and not expand their mind. And again, he's not talking about materialism versus Christianity. He's talking about materialism versus uh, the sort of human flourishing, where humans can actually discover and go outside the boundaries of such limited learning. So he wouldn't favor uh, a homeschooling that was, oh no, we're not reading reading anything outside of what's quote-unquote Christian. No, he, he would want the learning of the philosophers, you know, uh, Plato, Aristotle, and all these, and learning of other languages so that they can go out and be able to speak to these, uh, these things. Uh, so in this sense where, where education is limited, school becomes a place where higher human aspirations are crushed and the human soul destroyed. If this continues, he adds, that America will become one huge main street where spiritual adventure will be discouraged and democracy will be regarded as consisting in the reduction of all mankind to least gifted rather than allowing man to flourish in their calling. Okay. Now he concludes by going back to religion and how we shouldn't simply commend a religion because it is new or condemn a religion simply because it is old but rather we should ask, what was it that made men of the past so great and the men of the present so small? Have we gained the whole world only to lose our souls? Are we forever condemned to live a distasteful life of utilitarianism? Or is there a lost secret, which if discovered will restore mankind to something of the glories of the past? And I would ask, all of these achievements and progress, what will they achieve before God's throne if he has been ignored? Right. The secret is found in the Christian religion. Now, it is not a religion for the modern liberal church, but it is a message of divine grace, making the way for a new reformation in our time, which will bring light and freedom once again. The only way to define Christianity is is by way of contrast and exclusion. Christianity is an exclusive religion. That's why he didn't believe it was a public religion. It's exclusive, and it has a, an exclusive message, different from all the others. Where in America, as you saw, Christianity, all versions of Christianity, was being lumped up, up into one. And, and now with our society and the way it's going, we have that same temptation And that same tendency. We ought to be careful. In this book he wanted his readers to see what Christianity is. Not in order that you may see what it is. So that men may be led to turn from the weak and pitiful elements. And have recourse again to the grace of God. I'm going to end there. Any questions? Any comments? I know it's a lot, but if you got lost somewhere, you can just ask, and I'll try to come back to it. I'm sure, you got lost somewhere. Either. Well, let me listen to it again, and then I'll get back to you. So, materialism, materialism, form of athe- a- atheism, and it's very similar to liberalism, which is naturalism, giving a natural explanation for everything. And pretty much reducing Christianity to moralism. And then he got into the dangers of social, socialism. Not allowing the natural man to seek and to discover. And to um, have the freedom to do uh, that which he wills to do. Obviously within the limits of the law. Right? Um, so he wasn't, again, going back. He wasn't a Christian nationalist. Okay. I know many people want to put him under that category. He was not. He was a libertarian. Christian nationalists are not libertarian. Okay. Right. It's, it leads to tyranny. Any other question? Concern? All right. Ed, would you mind praying for us to close?